Birdnote presents. People like you and I, adults, would be processing and making the bricks. After the bricks are fired, they need to be laid out, dried, and some of them are not completely dry. So the children, enslaved children, their little hands would pick up the bricks and pretty heavy for them. And if they're not dried, they'd leave fingerprints. You see? One, two, three fingerprints here. There's a whole set of five down here. Do you see how small they are? I always like to touch them because I feel like I'm recognizing and honoring them. I got goosebumps. I got, I teared up. That's I it. feel like that's them just saying thank you. Thank you for recognizing us. Thank you for seeing our contribution. Thank you for speaking about our existence. More here. More fingerprints. Today on Threatened, we have a story of time travel, of touching a place through the hands of generations past and seeing it through modern eyes, of honoring a people for the incredible work they did, and of how that work continues today, creating habitat for an extraordinary number of birds. Stand in certain places long enough, and the past shimmers into view. I'm Ari Daniel. It's just after sunrise in South Carolina low country, near the coast. The morning light filters through the cottony clouds. I approach a lone figure, framed by giant oaks draped in Spanish moss, standing near the water's marshy edge. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Man, does it get any better than this? I mean, this is creation every day. Listening to the world wake up. Drew Lanham is a cultural and conservation ornithologist at Clemson University. He scans the marsh here at the Nemours Wildlife Foundation with his binoculars. Yeah, that's a gator roaring over there. (laughs) Three alligators float into view. Tree frogs chorus. The marsh grass sways in the humid breeze. And there are birds everywhere. We're the early birds, but not earliest. Orchard orioles have beat us to the punch. Great crested flycatchers have beat us to the punch. Tufted titmouse, the Peter, 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 Peter. We've got what look like ruffed wing swallows, likely in silhouette over the marsh. A northern perula, that. There's a red winged blackbird, pileated woodpecker, letting us know that it's here. Here on the bank of the Cumbie River, the tranquility is absolute. Look at that. Ah, looks like a tricolored heron. Wow. And yet, over the past few centuries, the birds have sung to different audiences. Some 400 years ago, the view would have been different. We'd be standing not beside a marsh, but in the middle of a swamp. The swamp is a wetland that's dominated by trees. Bald cypress, hefty tupelos. We go back to pre-settlement, and you think about much of this landscape as inhabited by indigenous people, so people like the Yemisee. And those people who would have nurtured nature in their own way, and then they were 
they were persecuted, executed, enslaved, many of them, and then sent south to the Bahamas. And in their place, 178,000 people were forcibly transported here from West Africa. Roughly 151,000 survived that journey. The water is what brought us. Saw all the way from Senegal, the Senegambia area, going on down to Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ghana, Nigeria, Benin, also Angola. Victoria Smalls, who we heard from at the top of this episode, is a national park ranger with the Reconstructionist-era National Historical Park in nearby Beaufort, South Carolina. And she belongs to a group of people who now call themselves the Gullah Geechee, descendants of the Africans brought here against their will. Victoria says the white colonists recognized a landscape that could be transformed into one perfect for growing rice. And, it turns out, perfect for creating critical bird habitat. There was just one problem. The white colonists didn't have the knowledge to do it. So they sought out the experts in rice growing. So they handpicked, kidnapped, enslaved uh, people from the rice-growing regions of West Africa. When they come here, wow, they're going to be greeted by the landscape and waterways that look similar to their homeland. There are stories of, of, of enslaved Africans seeing the South Carolina coast and thinking they were home because they saw much that looked familiar here. And so imagine that. Imagine being kidnapped, being in a slavehold for weeks, having to endure those fetid conditions of barely being able to move. And then being brought up on the deck of a ship after this, this passage across the Atlantic and seeing lands and thinking, I'm back home, only to be disembarked from that ship, bound, shackled, whipped. And forced to tame and transform the swamps into rice fields, which required two things. The first, immense and horrific physical toil. So imagine being out there in marsh, you would have been up since before daybreak. Imagine going out in what we call pluff mud, this marsh mud that wants to suck you down into it and having to work in the mosquitoes, the biting flies, cottonmouth snakes, alligators for no pay. Day after day, those enslaved black people, each one whose life mattered. There in the marsh, in the pluff mud, those enslaved people were removing trees to clear the forest for rice fields. Slowly, the cypress and tupelo disappeared from the swamps. Imagine a tree that's big enough for three grown men, three large men, they can't wrap their arms around it. 
right? How do you get rid of a tree like that? It's going to be really difficult to cut it down. Um, the long term is to girdle, to go around that cambium to sort of choke the tree, as it were, so that that tree dies. But no chainsaws, no, no gas engines, but people deforesting land that would, that would take decades removing acre by acre. So the labor was the first thing needed to transform the swamps into rice fields. The second was something these enslaved people had within them. And that's where those experts with the hydrology from West Africa, these engineers, come into play. The landscape today is evidence of them being here. Because once the trees were gone, the soggy ground beneath their feet had to be wholly re-sculpted. And that re-sculpting is what started attracting numerous new bird species to the area a few hundred years ago. And all the birds that we're hearing are, are probably birds that enslaved people would have heard. Elsewhere on the Nemours Wildlife Foundation, which encompasses what used to be multiple rice plantations and which remains home to many of these bird species, I meet wildlife biologist Ernie Wiggers, who directs the foundation. He explains what enslaved people had to do to create these rice fields, which is all about regulating the flow of water to flood and drain the rice when needed. They didn't want water in there until they were ready for water. So they built an incredible series of dikes to keep the water out of these rice fields. And, and dike is this? The, the dirt, the earth here. It's just an earthen berm separating the field from the tidal river. So on one side of this berm, which was originally built by enslaved people, you've got water going up and down with the natural tides. And on the other side, in the cultivated rice fields, the water can now be controlled. Dikes were built throughout coastal South Carolina, requiring a colossal movement of dirt, millions of metric tons of the stuff. And we think that number's well beyond the volume of material moved to build the Great Pyramids of Egypt. So just to give it a sense of what was done here, and it was all done by hand. By enslaved people. But then you need a way to regulate the water level within the rice fields, to move water in and out when needed, controlling the tide, in other words. That's where something called a trunk comes in, basically a large wooden tube that sits inside the berm and allows water to flow from one side to the other. Well, back then they had what they call a trunk minder, who might have been an, an older individual with, you know, kind of that skill set. Because you had to do a couple of things. You wanted to know what depth of water you wanted in your rice field. And two, you wanted to make sure it was fresh water that you were putting in there. So they had to taste it and see if it was bitter or sour and they could pick up the salty taste. On either end of the trunk, that tube, you've got these gates that push open with the flow of water. And so this will keep pushing water through until the tide stops. Bo Bauer is a wildlife biologist at Nemours. So now it switches to low tide, it's going to shut this door here on the side we're managing. And it's going to hold this water here. 
The closed gate plugs the trunk to keep the water from leaving, unless you want to drain the water, in which case you pull up on the gate like Bo's doing now. He inserts a large metal pry bar and hoists the door. You see how that, those doors are coming up? There was a whole series of add water, pull water off, add water. These water control structures were used multiple times during the growing of the rice during the year. It's, it's this, an ingenious contraption, this utilizing gravity and tides to move water where you want it. An ingenious contraption designed, installed, and maintained by the West Africans and their descendants. Come late summer, early fall, they'd drain the water to dry out the fields for harvesting and stacking the rice. There was, there was a science to it all along. Drew Lanham again. So you're, you're, you're getting the knowledge, you're getting this free physical labor, and, and the cost is in human lives and suffering. They got better and better at it and made their owners those who would chattel them extraordinarily rich and powerful. We are responsible for the wealth that was brought to this area. Victoria Smalls again. I like to say we. My ancestors survived the Middle Passage on ships. They survived the warehouses that they were stored in here in America until the, the market price was right for them to be sold or auctioned off. They survived years, hundreds of years of enslavement. And so things went for more than a century and a half. Generations of enslaved people laboring in a hostile swamp under merciless oppression. Until. Until one morning in the middle of the Civil War, six months after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, something remarkable happened on the Cumbie River, near where Drew and I stand now. In June of 1863, Ari, Harriet Tubman commanded a raid on this river and liberated estimates upward of 700 enslaved black people. This extraordinary woman who was in command and had the courage to move forward in ways that others hadn't. After the break, how Tubman pulled it off and how the legacy of the people she encountered along the Cumbie lives on today through the birds darting above the water and singing in the marsh. Join Bird Note on Wednesday, March 27th for a captivating conversation about the power of photography. A panel of esteemed photographers will share their experiences breathtaking captures, and insights into how stunning imagery can inspire action for birds. Plus, stick around to hear the winners of BirdNote's 19th birthday photo contest. Register for free at birdnote.org. Welcome back. We left off on the bank of the Cumbie River when, in the summer of 1863, Harriet Tubman shows up on a Union flotilla leading her team of spies, scouts, and pilots. The ships are gunboats, and despite the name, they're synonymous with freedom. Board one and make it to safety, and you're free. Most of the soldiers accompanying her are formerly enslaved black people from South Carolina volunteering to fight for the Union. They arrive at 6 a.m. 
and the enslaved people were already in the rice fields. They were already working. Etta Fields Black is a historian at Carnegie Mellon University and a descendant of the enslaved laborers in the rice fields. The people who were on the plantations knew that the boat was coming. They heard the uninterrupted steam whistle blow. So it was a long sound, but a very distinctive sound. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people ran from the rice fields towards that whistle. And there were boats sent out to bring people from the riverbanks onto the gunboats. There were so many people who came down to the river that they were having trouble loading people onto the boats and taking off. There just wasn't enough space. And people were holding on to the sides of the boats to prevent the boats from leaving without them. They were sitting ducks, basically. If they hang around for too long, then Confederate reinforcements might show up. So the decision was, save those aboard or lose everyone. Colonel Montgomery asks Tubman to sing to her, her people and tell them that everything was going to be okay. And she does. She, she literally sang about the federal government basically having good intentions for them that the U.S. government was actually going to protect them and pay them and employ them. The melody would have been familiar to people, but she changes the words. And so at the end of a verse, they were to say hallelujah. And people said hallelujah and raised their hands. And when they raised their hands, they let go of the boats. And that's when the boat started to take off. So those in the water were left behind. But that singing allowed the 756 people already aboard to depart. In this raid, Harriet Tubman, called the Moses of her people, was the first woman to ever lead U.S. military forces, this group of spies, scouts, and pilots. And their success was astonishing. As part of the Underground Railroad, Tubman freed 60 or 70 people over nearly a decade. But that one morning on the river... In the Cumbie Raid, they freed 756 people in six hours, and they did not lose a single life. The raid devastated the plantations. Without the enslaved labor force, the land was really worthless, especially the rice fields, because they had to be maintained. In fact, the African-American Infantry Regiment opened those water control gates and allowed the salt water to ruin the rice that had just been planted in the rice fields, right? That rice would have fed the Confederate army. Ornithologist Drew Lanham gazes out across the Cumbie to where Harriet Tubman and her armada pulled that steam whistle, that piercing cry of liberation. History is here. You can walk in the footsteps of all these people. So when you hear the bird song, trying to imagine what it must have been like for a dream to come true, for freedom, of making the decision to strike out, to dive in, to wade in, to go. 
Those who were freed here and elsewhere became refugees of a sort. Some joined the Union forces and fought the Confederacy that had shackled them. In 1865, the Union won. The Civil War ended, and the formerly enslaved fanned out across coastal South Carolina and beyond, forming what had become known as the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor, which stretches from Wilmington, North Carolina, to St. Augustine, Florida. The United States is a country built on the backs of enslaved people, a deep wound that's never healed, one that continues to define us at the polls, on social media, and in our communities. Those who were enslaved on a place like this, what's now the Nemours Wildlife Foundation, sacrificed their lives to transform this landscape. And the legacy of that transformation, remarkably, lives on today. Which brings us back to those water control structures, the dikes, trunks, and gates. Hundreds of years later, we're still using the same fundamental principles to manage these old rice fields now for uh, waterfowl and other, other water birds and other wildlife. Would you like to see the inland field this is feeding right now? And there might be some birds or something out there. Oh, and yeah, that'd be great. Wildlife biologist Bo Bauer leads me further inland, along a muddy path flanked by pockets of chorusing green tree frogs. The scene here pretty closely resembles what things would have looked like during the rice-growing era, minus the rice. So when the rice culture collapsed in the early 1900s, these plantations found new value as recreational hunting areas. And imagine hundreds of years of growing rice, how many ducks that attracted. It was phenomenal numbers, likely altered migratory routes of many of these species. The hunters wanted to keep those ducks and other waterfowl coming here. So the hunters learned how to use the water management system to flood and drain the area in order to propagate native plants like widgeon grass and create the right habitat for these birds. These vast wetlands have since become part of places like the Nemours Wildlife Foundation. And Bo and his colleagues are managing way more than ducks in what's become a living laboratory. Why these managed wetlands are so critical for conservation is that this provides a, a stable environment for these birds, especially migratory birds, that you can time these management activities to facilitate those birds. The team here is taking the water control systems once manipulated for rice and using them in a new way to attract different birds at different times of the year. So in the spring, you can draw the water levels back down to just an inch or two, what we call skinny water. And now you've timed that water manipulation and that water level with the arrival of spring migrating shorebirds. Tens of thousands of these shorebirds arrive in enormous flocks, and they forage in the skinny water, in the mud, to make the rest of their migratory journey to breed. And it's hard maintaining skinny water unless you have a managed wetland. And then fall comes around, you start bringing your water levels back up to 8 to 12 inches for growing your widgeon grass and your spike rush for the ducks will be arriving in the, in the winter. And in the meantime, you're having all these different herons and wading birds, you know, storks, roseate spoonbills using these wetlands. The American alligator and bald eagle can both trace some of their recovery success to these old rice fields. Also, the black rail, a small, rare, and secretive bird with ruby eyes that loves shallow water. And that's been like the last refuge for those birds, at least in South Carolina. Not to mention entirely new species drawn to the managed wetlands. But despite everything that's been achieved here, 
this place continues to transform, again at the hands of human beings. Climate change is making tropical storms more frequent and intense. So when those storms occur, it's pushing large wedges of water up the river, these large tidal surges, and those will overflow the dikes and even cut into the dikes and cause what we call breaks. You might even lose some of your rice trunks. Sea level rise is making it harder for managed wetlands closer to the coast to drain off their water in the spring. And the water flooding these areas is increasingly salty. So if we lose these managed wetlands, we lose those birds and that biodiversity. A whole suite of species you'll find out in these managed wetlands that you're not going to find in a tidal marsh. But at least for now, the management continues. The legacy of the people who once worked the low country endures. Because so much is unseen, because so many stories are untold. Drew Lanham again. Many don't know, but it's important to not forget, to not bury that history under the pluff, or let it be drowned out by the water, but to amplify it. Those black hands that created so much are still working, and I get that here. I get that here. I don't have to see a single soul other than birds flying, but then I know underneath those birds' wings, look at that. Those are black-bellied whistling ducks, black-bellied whistling ducks that just, that just flew by us. And so the birds are symbols, the black-bellied whistling ducks, the black rails, the black-necked stilts, the red-winged blackbirds, I can never see a black rail, which is an extraordinarily rare bird, to know that the hands of black people helped create a land that makes black rails possible. The very same systems that created suffering are now saving birds. The work of force has become the work of goodwill for wildlife. And so this is a place where you come to expect an overwhelm of ornithology. Like you say, we don't see the people, and yet we're standing upon the ground that they shaped. And so it's like you have to know what you're looking for. Ari, you, don't, you have to know what you're looking for, but sometimes the best way to see it is to close your eyes. And if you close your eyes, and just listen, and just let yourself be in this place, you can almost feel it come up through the soles of your feet. This is our final episode of the season. To learn more about plantation ecology, as Drew Lanham's coined it, visit our website, birdnote.org. Across this season of Threatened, we've seen case after case of how people alter landscapes, and that impacts birds. They must share their world with us, for better or worse. And let's face it, usually it's for worse. But not always. We can find ways to coexist, to encourage comebacks, to create and restore habitat, and make things just a little less threatened. 
This episode was produced by me, Ari Daniel, and edited by Caitlin Pierce of the Rough Cut Collective. Audio mix by Rob Byers, Johnny Vince Evans, and Michael Rayfield of Final Final V2. Our theme song and original music were composed by Ian Koss, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Threatened is a production of Birdnote and overseen by content director Allison Wilson with production assistance from Sam Johnson. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>